Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and work of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm communication specialist, Clay. In this episode, Coordinator for Faculty Programs, Philip Hollingsworth, speaks with Associate Professor of Anthropology, Charles Price. In their conversation, Dr. Price discusses his current book project on the Rastafari and what it means to be a Rastafarian. He also talks about his path in becoming an anthropology professor and two highly influential books. So right now you you spent a semester working on a project. Can you talk a little bit about your uh, current research project? Okay, so I'll start, Philip, with the book. I am working on a book uh, that's about Rastafari collective identity formation, and I I see this book as a complement to my first book. So in my first book, Becoming Rasta, I focused on individual life stories because I really wanted to know how and why people became Rastafarians because that was a big question, really, that no one had tackled. So there was all this scholarship and all this popular work on Rastafarians, but, you know, people were really speculating as to why, you know, the Rastafarians even, you know, are on the scene. So one, for instance, was that, or is that, Rastafarians uh, represent a reaction to capitalism, right? Okay. Um, This is one example. Another prominent uh, explanation, let's say, during the 70s, and late 60s was that uh, Rastafarians represented a, um, a response to relative deprivation. In other words, really poor people trying to imagine a different world, sort of create this fantasy about this new black god and king. And that didn't square at all with my understanding, right? Okay. So I really set out to talk to elders and to really interview them and understand from their point of view why they became Rastafari and why they remained committed to it. And I think that turned up a very different story. So what I got there was a perspective of individuals, Mm -hmm. right, Um, and their journeys into the faith and their commitment to the faith over the course of the life uh, span. Was there a common thread that you saw with their explanations? For sure. So one thread was that they were all, almost to the person, interested in existential questions about God and race. And, uh, you know, the language is academic, but one of the concerns was really that people were recognizing that they were miseducated, right? That, in other words, they did not have an understanding of their history and their culture. And so they were seeking answers to a lot of questions. And uh, for a lot of them, history had sort of been hidden from them or hidden to them, right? And so they literally embarked on quests to learn from their point of view what is the biblical history of African-descended people? What do we need to know about the Bible that we don't know, that we've been taught that's inconsistent or favorable to Europeans? Um, So they couched this in terms of truth, Mm -hmm. in terms of justice, Um, and then there was also the colonial component. So the British were um, erecting their own kind of edifice in terms of explaining how the world works and what's proper behavior. So there were a lot of things that these early Rastafarians that were reacting to uh, in very concrete and pragmatic ways, you know. Um, More importantly though, what I discovered there that really inspired this book was that you can't really understand the life arc of individuals without understanding what came before them and what they're drawing on. 
Right. So in this book, I really sought to explain the development of the collective, right, Rastas as a people, and what cultural resources they draw on, what are the key factors involved. Because um, as you've heard me say, one of the big questions for me is, is that new groups uh, arise all the time. You know, yeah. they're innumerable. But what becomes interesting and important is the ones that survived that first generation. Okay. And make yeah. it to a second generation and beyond that. So what are the factors that allow them to survive and persist and in some cases to grow? Okay. And so that's yeah. what I'm really trying to explain with this book. And this is the new book? This is the second okay. book. So the tentative title is Rasta, the Evolution of a People and Their Identity. Is there anything surprising that you've uncovered in this process of doing the research and writing? I am constantly surprised, and there's so many surprises that I'm starting to get anxious. <laughs> because I'm, consti- I'm constantly finding new things, new parts of the story that I don't know, and I think that a lot of other scholars haven't considered. So I'll give you an example. Um, I've discovered, you know, for a long time, I thought the Rastafarians were not unique, but they're... Um, desire for repatriation was long-standing almost from the beginning, but I thought it was primarily their work and interest. But now I'm discovering a lot of work on what was in, in Jamaica called migration to Africa preceded some of the actual efforts that manifested in the 60s. So I'll give an example. Two weeks ago, I discovered that um, the United Negro Improvement Association, a branch in Kingston, petitioned the government to fund uh, migration of Jamaicans to Liberia. Mm. And this was actually debated in the House of Representatives. And a small colony, if you will, for lack of a better word, actually departed Jamaica in 1948. So now I've got another part of the story now that I was kind of unaware of. But it makes more sense now because um, by mid-1950s, there's a really widespread repatriation fervor in Jamaica. And I, up until this point, had attributed, had attributed it to um, a visit from the international organizer of the Ethiopian uh, World Federation. Oh, okay. So she came there in September 1955 and announced that um, Emperor Selassie had set aside some land in Shashimani in Ethiopia for all of the people of the African diaspora who were interested in settling in Ethiopia. Yeah. So in my mind, that was kind of like the catalyst for this interest, but now I see it goes back further, which is a good thing. So what was the result of that visit and then this earlier discussion about repatriation? Mm-hmm. Were there actual exodus to, to back to Africa or to some of these states? So, so let's back up for a moment. Okay. Right? Okay, so let's go all the way back to the early 1900s, okay. uh, 1910s. All right. And I, we really need this in order to make sense of what happens in the 1960s and 70s, mm-hmm. right? And so um, somewhere around the 1910s, and I can't recall all the details right now, but um, he would have been king then, King Rastafari, um, had showed some interest and Emperor Menelik at the time has shown some interest in Africans of the diaspora, in particular African-Americans, um, settling in Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. And in fact, a few emissaries were sent over during the early 1920s and uh, sort of talked with folk in New York City 
to sort of throw this idea around. You know, if you want to come to Ethiopia, we could use your talent. You know, yeah. we got a lot of stuff. We're modernizing. Come on over. And some African-Americans really took them up on it. Yeah. So during the 1920s, a number, I won't say a large number, but a number of African-Americans uh, visited Ethiopia, and some actually um, made their home there. A number of these visitors to Ethiopia came from the Caribbean as well. And some of them came from Jamaica. Okay. And the connection there is really important because one of the women, uh, I, I, I haven't determined whether she was born in Jamaica or Panama, but I'm right now consider her Jamaican. Grace Garrison visited Ethiopia, spent five years there, and returned not long after Rastafari the king was crowned emperor. And she came back to Jamaica and she actually had pictures of his imperial majesty. Yeah. So you can imagine now, this is like 1931, somewhere right around there, and people in Jamaica are really understanding now that there are black folk who have traveled to Ethiopia. So for the longest, we thought it was just a ridiculous fantasy that these early Rastas wanted to go to Ethiopia. Well, they yeah. actually had exemplars, people who had been there and brought back stories. Mm -hmm. This idea, almost from the beginning, the first Rastas were talking about returning to Ethiopia. Now, they explained it sometimes in some very fantastic ways, right? Yeah. So one story that I liked that was published in the Daily Gleaner, uh, roughly around August 1934, is, is that they, a small group of Rastas reported that they were getting ready to leave to Ethiopia, and they had grown their beards out, and they were going to march across the sea, and mm -hmm. their beards were going to cleave the water in front of them. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> so the press picked that up and yeah, used yeah. it to make fun of them, right? Right, you right. Know? So this idea of uh, migrating to Ethiopia was there from the beginning from the Rastas. Mm -hmm. But it's not as grounded in fantasy as a lot of us would have argued, you know, 10 years ago. But there is something to that telling of the fantastic. And the reason I, it, what made me think of this is during the Spanish colonization mm -hmm. of like Latin America, they would describe Tenochtitlan, the capital, which is now Mexico right. City, they mm -hmm. would describe it, they would say it's like the things of Amadis de Gaula, which mm -hmm. was this mm -hmm. old uh, book on mm -hmm. like knights, you know, it was basically what mm -hmm. Don Quixote made fun of. Right. And it was these, you know, these mm -hmm. fantastic tales, but mm -hmm. they would say this is, this mm -hmm. place is like, this is the real thing of this fiction. Mm -hmm. And actually, California is named after an island in that book. Really? Yeah, so it's like mm -hmm. naming a state after, mm -hmm. I don't know, uh, the Shire or something right, from right, Tolkien right. or something. But So, you know, yeah. that, that's the other thing. So it's, it's interesting that you bring that up because this is the other important thing um, for me and something that I emphasize in the book, the second book, is that it's important to understand the cultural resources that people draw on. Yeah. Um, many of these resources precede them, and sometimes they reformulate the meanings, mm -hmm. all right, for current purposes. Yeah. So, um, you know, part of sort of understanding the evolution of the Rasta people involves understanding the cultural resources that they tapped into and drew on. And one was this sort of idea of Ethiopia as a very special an anointed land, you know, with this long history that goes all the way back to King David and King Solomon. Okay, yeah. So there's a lot there, you know, and um, that I think needs to be brought into the story that we sometimes leave out. You're in the Department of Anthropology. Mm -hmm. So what led you to this career in, mm -hmm. in as an academic in anthropology? Mm -hmm. 
that's or a long anthropologist. Yeah, so that's say. a long story. I got to think for a moment on, okay. on that, Philip. As an undergraduate, I took an anthropology course. I had no idea what I was enrolling in. Okay. All right. I took it, and uh, it actually turned out to be very interesting. Uh, interesting in the sense that I didn't realize, and I honestly did not realize, I was just that naive, that the world was filled with so many different kinds of people who yeah. did things so differently. I was yeah. like, this is fascinating. I want to understand mm-hmm. this. So that was kind of like the kernel that was planted uh, in my mind early on. So uh, I went to the College of Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina for my undergraduate um, degree. And there wasn't an anthropology major, so I majored in sociology. But I took a lot of anthropology courses. And toward the end, uh, a Jamaican anthropologist really, and, and a Kenyan anthropologist, uh, both of them at the College of Charleston really urged me to go to graduate school. Uh, because I was um, a Rasta early in the faith, they felt strongly that I need to go to a school where <laughs> it was very diverse, and that turned yeah. out to be why. So I ended up um, moving to the University of South Florida, okay. where I took a master's degree in applied anthropology, and I started the PhD program there. But what uh, really caught me there was the applied anthropology part. So I became really interested in how we use uh, academic knowledge really in the real world to solve real problems, to work with real people, rather than simply going out, collecting data, analyzing it, and publishing it. So I wanted to do both. Mm-hmm. And so that gave me a framework for, on the one hand, being active and engaged, um, but on the other hand, also pursuing you know, academic questions like you know, collective identity formation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? uh, this is a question we ask okay. everyone. And we'll end on this. Okay, sure. What's a book that changed your life? Oh, my, a book that changed my life. All right, so I have to say two books. Okay, that's fine. They changed me I'll at allow different it. points in time, right? <laughs> so the first one was, this was probably around eighth grade. I picked up Kurt Vonnegut's uh, Cat's Cradle. And it's hard to remember because this was eighth grade, but I remember it was yeah, eighth yeah. grade, right? And our library was probably the size of a bedroom in, in my school. It's <laughs> uh-huh. a really small uh, rural school at the time. And for some reason, the cover caught my eye, and I kind of flipped through it, and I saw some really interesting drawings. I was like, I'm going to read this book. And uh, it just opened my eyes up to thinking about the world in a different way that I had never considered. There was language in it that uh, I thought you couldn't put in a book, right. you know. And so that was one. So that kind of yeah. opened me up to reading stuff that I would never, ever have read, right? Mm-hmm. So that kind of opened me up to being eclectic in my reading habits. But I say the book that probably really changed me the most was the Communist Manifesto. And I love that book. One, I love the way it's written. Yeah. <laughs> I love the images. Uh-huh. I love the tone. Yeah. You know, um, and I've always thought, uh, I've always wanted to sort of be able to write that way, uh-huh. to say, you know, there's a specter haunting the world. Yeah. You know, to use that kind of imagery. Opiate of the masses. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> when, did you get, when did you get your hands on that? Oh, I read it uh, as an undergraduate, but I didn't understand it. Yeah. Um, and then when I got back to New York City, this is probably in the early 90s, maybe 92, 93, I read it again. And that's when, you know, being back in New York City, actually, you know, studying at the Marxist school, it had a whole different oh, okay. ring. Yeah, yeah. You know? So I still, I enjoy it. That's one of, mm-hmm. some of my top, uh, top greens. Yep. All right. Well, thank you very much for your All time. All right. It's my pleasure. It. All right. You're welcome. 
Check back at iah.unc.edu for the latest news on our fellows and upcoming events at Hyde Hall. You can find all our episodes of the podcast on our website, as well as iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Please like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at IAH underscore UNC.